Hey, Jeff. Hey, Eric. How are you? I am pretty good. How are you? Doing well, thank you. Let me ask you, Jeff. Mm -hmm. Are you pretty good? Because New York City is officially in phase two of the reopening. Wow. And you have gone basically four months Mm -hmm. without cutting the hair on top of your head. I did a bad mushroom and (laughs) and it has grown into a normal haircut after the bad mushroom. It's grown out. It's you look like you have a pompadour. Yeah. Um, You are. uh, I'm wearing a hat. You are wearing a hat without wearing a hat. (laughs) Oh, okay. It's just it's it's a lot of hair on top of your head. Mm hmm. You've made contact with your barber, Troy. Can't wait. What did he say, and when is this going down? He said that he's driving up from South Carolina. For this? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and that he should, uh, he's going to hit me back in, with the time. Um, now I'm wondering, Yeah. since he's coming from outside the city. Does he have to be quarantined? Does he have to be quarantined? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So you're going to have to wait an extra two weeks yeah. on top of all the time you waited to this point. I was thinking about maybe keeping it long. And after all the complaining you've done. Well, no, long on top. <laughs> maybe you want to know what? <laughs> Fuck it. I'm getting, I'm going to have a professional do a rat tail. A rat tail? Yeah. You do realize mm-hmm. that the rat tail is at the bottom of your hair. Yeah. I'm going to grow it from the top. You... <laughs> We're I'm talking, gonna do like like what was that uh, that '80s uh, singer like Kapow or something? I have I'm gonna no do idea what you're talking about. Listen, Kapow Hive. <laughs> I I just feel like you've had all these promises mm-hmm. that are just empty. Frankly, the <laughs> the mullet, the uh, mm-hmm. the rat tail. It's a lot of talk, and yep. here we are, Jeff. You committed to growing your hair out. No, but I'm gonna do it now. <laughs> it starts out now. Yeah, it starts now. Okay. Um. Troy, who listens, by the way, mm-hmm. is going to give you a normal haircut, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, does it feel weird to have your hair this long after? No. You know? you're, okay. The hair stuff is is stupid. The the <laughs> the thing that's going to feel weird is being around somebody. Sure. Like having. Well, does uh, that haircut happen in a chair on the street? No. So it's what? actually in chair on the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know, like how this you know environment works now. I am not getting my hair cut on the street. <laughs> I, I can tell you that much. If if you're Troy gonna sit in a regular up, barber chair, if Troy sets up a chair on the street, I am not going to see Troy. Like that's that's <laughs> shout out my to Troy by the way. On the street, like I'm getting like <laughs> like back alley surgery. Yeah, uh, <laughs> haircut on the run. Yeah, like hey, what's up with that guy getting his hair cut on the street? Wouldn't no, that be a great a- story though? That Troy drives up from South Carolina, gives you a haircut in a chair on the street. I would feel sends you on your way. Disgusting. Just my hair just like going down onto the sidewalk. Like everything about it just sounds terrible to me. It sounds like an Instagram live to me. So honestly <laughs> not a bad idea. Uh Jeff, before we get into uh who's on the podcast today, mm-hmm. I do want to shout out everybody who has made it through phase one, especially in New York City. Uh People are now dining outside on the streets. Which is nuts. <laughs> it's listen, what, is, what is worse? Dining on the street yeah. in a pandemic, yeah. like around other people, yeah. or getting your hair cut alone on the street. What's worse? <laughs> I mean, listen, uh, probably getting your hair cut on the street. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> but, but at least you're not doing it next to a person eating. But like, t- everybody should take a shot every time we say haircut on the street, <laughs> because that is what we've said about 4,000 times. Shout out to everybody who's made it through this far. Uh, here's the biggest thing, guys. 
keep wearing your masks. This thing is far from over. You cannot outsmart a virus. Yeah, it's it's it exists in Florida. It exists in Arizona. It exists in Oklahoma. In Montana. In California, certainly. Everywhere, everywhere. You get your haircut on the street, you're getting an, uh, <laughs> just fifteen percent COVID. Wear a mask. It is the simplest thing you can do, if not for yourself. Yeah. For other people out there, don't be stupid. Wear a mask. Shout to all the Black Lives Matter protesters that are still moving forward. I think that uh, all the actionable things that are going into play right now are important, and I I love the momentum that we're seeing out there. Keep it going. Shout out to everybody who is on the right side of history. Um, and I want to shout out everybody who is rocking with us on a totally different level, uh, supporting our art here as we, uh, we move forward through this pandemic. Uh, if you go to patreon.com slash it's the real, it is an easy way to contribute to, uh, what we have going on, which is a lot of things. I think you, you see it with the podcasts, you see it with the videos, um, you see it with the skits, uh, a lot of fun stuff on the way, patreon.com slash it's the real. And today on the podcast, Jeff. We have Leslie Braithwaite. Shout out to Leslie, who was on Quarantine Radio, our Quarantine Radio. Yeah. The original. The real. Quarantine Radio. Yeah. uh, About a month, month and a half ago or so. We had a 20-minute segment with him. Today, we wanted to talk about his incredible journey from the U.S. Virgin Islands to Full Sail University to working as the preferred engineer with Beyonce and Madonna and Lil Uzi Vert and, and Jack Pharrell. Harlow and Young Jeezy and Rick Ross. Keep going. And uh, Cardi B. Keep going. And Michael Jackson. Keep going. And he has won Grammy Awards. Keep going. And he is just a lot of fun. Keep going. Uh, uh, Manny Fresh. Keep going. And uh, Lil Wayne. Keep going. And Jay-Z. Keep going. And Keep going. There's so Keep many going. people. Yeah. Shout out to Leslie, who is always fun to talk to, a great soul and a terrific Mix engineer. Yes. Um, it is just a fantastic conversation. Very excited to bring you guys that here today. It felt like normal, which was a very nice thing. Did it feel like, Jeff? Getting my hair cut, cut in the street. Yeah. No. The answer? <laughs> it's not. My, my hair What feels, if that's the new normal? My hair feels so hot. When people talk about just, what the new normal is, it's getting your hair cut in the street. No, I love it's it. not. I love it. Here we are, Do not put 2020, that into the air. haircut in the street. Haircut in the street. Jeff, when do you want to get into this? Right now. Yo, what up? It's Eric, a.k.a. One Up Mushroom, a.k.a. Play On, Playa. Yo, what up? It's Jeff, a.k.a. Fuck the System, a.k.a. Computer Love. What up? <laughs> wait. I'm here. Yeah, it's your third favorite podcast to waste time with It's The Real. Leslie, what's happening? I feel like I gotta follow Leslie, uh, we spoke with you probably a month, month and a half ago uh, during our quarantine radio series, and you told us on that podcast that you had decamped out to your truck, you had set up an entire studio in the back back seat, and you then sent us a picture of your desk, your computer, your monitors. Are you still out in that truck, and how has this been going? It's been going great. Yes, I'm still in the truck. I'm currently mixing Cardi B's album in the truck. Amazing. I'm about five five songs in. We're about four or five. Yeah, we're about we're on the fifth song now. So, have you changed your setup whatsoever this entire time in the truck? Um, a little bit. So when I first got in the truck, my mode was set up a laptop. I had my Apollo, and I plugged into the aux uh, input. And I was using the car system 
you know, because I know this system very well. Sure. And I wanted to see how some of the mixes would come out. And they were coming out great. But then I, I started yearning for my usual Focals and KRK sub. And I said, well, the Cadillac is pretty big. It's got the space. <laughs> and I brought the Focals in. I found a way to make it work. The sub is in here. The KRK sub sits right in the middle. Uh, on my second row, I have captain's chairs. So it allows for like a space in the middle. Yeah. So the sub sits right there. Focals sit on the two captain's chairs folded down. And then I sit in the third row. And it has been nothing short of amazing and a blast. And it's my own little space. And it actually sounds really good. I get a really good sound out of here. It gives me a real true balance of what I'm hearing. Um, like I think I touched on last time, cars are designed for acoustics. I yeah. mean, everything yeah. about the way uh, the interior of a car is designed, A, they're designed to minimize road noise. There's no surfaces that are parallel. It just it's amazing. Yeah, but cars are also built to like run errands. So are you <laughs> still like having to go to the grocery store and stuff? So yeah, so well, my <laughs> wife has a car too. So I, I just take her car and I go do whatever I got to do. She has a Range Rover, so I hop in there and you know, there's no loss of comfort there. And uh, we so her her car has become the family errand car and my car is now the studio. <laughs> uh, Leslie, this past weekend was Father's Day. How did you celebrate? Uh, happy Father's Day to you and uh, and how did everyone uh, enjoy the weekend? We just kind of took it. It was kind of like a regular quarantine day. Um, we just sat around. I was on the couch playing Call of Duty most of the time and taking some time out. The kids built me a nice fort in the living room and I was chilling in there and we just had a ball. And then my wife, you know, put some food on the grill and we just kind of chilled. We just had chill family day, which it's kind of been it's kind of been our life for the past three months. It's yeah. Been chill family vibes. For sure. Well, uh, I think we should also mention that uh, there have been, uh, I think, the last probably month or so, uh, obviously, a lot of protests, a lot of uh, attention brought to the fact um, that there is uh, a swell of movement towards trying to uh, bring some type of equality. This has been something that is not just uh, this year. It's not something that is just uh, the past couple of years. This goes beyond Ferguson. This is the past 400 years. It is systemic. Um, what are your thoughts as a black man in America uh, today? Um, I have a ton of thoughts, so I'll try to keep it kind of succinct. Um, First, as a father, it was interesting going through this and having to explain to my daughters as my oldest daughter, the 11 year old, is asking questions. And, you know, why do people not like each other just because of the color of their skin? And I don't get it. And why do we X, Y and Z? And, you know, so it's a lot of tough but necessary conversations. And what, what the first thing I'll say is what I like about this era and what's happening where we are all having conversations. We are all listening to each other. A lot of my white friends have reached out and just wanted to hear. They just said, just tell me, talk to me. And I think that awakening spirit of people just really understanding that this is a thing and this is something that deeply, deeply affects a lot of Black people and it hurts. And to be able to share that and to know that the ears that are listening are really trying to understand it's just encouraging and so i think one of the good things that's coming out of all of this is all of the conversations not just the conversations we're having with each other like i said with my white friends or colleagues 
it's also inspiring us to have these conversations with our kids, with our wives, with our husbands, with our families. And one thing I, I touched on, I, I talked about this, uh, I was on a panel uh, last week. And one of the things I said was, I feel like as a kid growing up in the you know late 70s, 80s, I think what we've done ourselves a disservice as a society where we have always deemed certain things not okay to talk about. You know, you at a restaurant and you bring up the president and then my mom pokes me and says, you know, son, we don't talk about politics at the dinner table. Right. Or we don't talk about race or we don't talk about race in the workplace or kneeling before the national anthem is not the correct place to address police brutality because people just want to see a football game. We've developed this culture of not talking about things. And I always thought it was the most ridiculous thing in the world where people make politics such a taboo subject. And it's one of the things that affects us the most. Yeah. It should be something that we talk about comfortably. It shouldn't be an uncomfortable thing to say, let's talk about Trump and how dumb he is. Right. Or, yeah. Let's right. talk about Obama and I don't like this. So it shouldn't be off the, the, the table. And so I think the same thing about race and our differences and our similarities, all those things should be addressed. It should be okay to talk about these things. And that's where... I think that what this movement is doing is making things okay to talk about and make forcing us to be in this zone of let's talk about this. Let's have these conversations. Let's talk about how race affects the way I look at things. Like I had to explain white privilege so much over the past few months. It's not even funny and it's fine. I've had to do it all my life, but it's things that may not affect a white person that affect me. When I go into a bank, and apply for a loan, I'm sitting there wondering, am I not going to get X, Y, and Z because I'm black? Yeah. Or I've gotten, I've had situations where I didn't get an internship because I was black. I addressed it years later with the studio owner, but we, we talked about it. And so it's, it's I love that this movement, um, all of the protests and everything that's happening um, is be, is pushing us into a state of not just awareness, but action. We have to talk about it. We have to do better. We have to not say things that may seem benign, like, oh, I don't see color. Yeah. And, you know, that in itself is marginalized. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? We can, we can appreciate our differences. We can say, yes, you are black. Yes, you are white. We are different. There are differences, but there are similarities. And we can celebrate both. Yeah. Yeah. And so I love that. That's where we're being forced. That's the space we're being forced into it. I love it. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, what's interesting about this time is that, you know, what started with a um, a problem with police, it's like we're finally addressing the larger conversation. Because I think that so many people, they say, well, we, we have to have a conversation, but we never actually do have it. We always kick the can down the road. And so exactly. to address everything from like the root of it all and to say, OK, yes. well, you know, it, it's not just police, but it's, it's right. you know, the fact that money doesn't come into black neighborhoods and, you know, all this stuff. And so um, I, I do want to connect that to your story. Like, you know, when, when you talk about um, getting an internship and how you weren't able to get that, talk about like, first of all. Um, you applying, like, talk about the entire situation. So I just got into Atlanta. Uh, it was a studio. The name of the studio was Doppler Studios. I walked, I, I got over there. Um, 
I showed up early. I was the first person there for the internship. The young lady that was sitting at the front, she and I had started talking. Um, and she even made a reference to the fact that she said, man, you're, you're on point. You're here early, you know, you're dressed appropriately, all the good stuff. But she was like, man, I, I know dude, and I know he might not, you know, he's just, I, I have never, she was like, you're the first young black engineer I've seen applying for an internship here. So, wow. so that was kind of a tip. So I'm early, by the way, I get there. My counterparts are all late because it was like an interview where we were interviewing like, a, it was like five of us at the same time. And they're all like, dumb late like one was like 10 minutes late one was like a half hour late and so we left and then um he let me know short after that hey i don't really have an opening for you da 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 three of the other um four guys all were white guys three of them got internships and i didn't and i knew why right away so fast forward some months later i'm now over at Dark Studios, I'm working with Dallas, I'm working with TLC and all you know, all this stuff. Yeah. And Dark Dark gets flooded one day. We we had a flood and the the studio got like just the whole floor of the studios got flooded. So we had to go work over at Doppler. So I go over to this is like a, about a year and a half later now. Probably like almost two years later. So I go over to Doppler and I walk in and the first person I see is the studio manager who was, who interviewed me. Mm. And he said, man, look at you now. Like, cause at that time I was tracking TLC and TLC was the largest group in the world. And I'm the recording engineer coming in and they're prepping for me and all the assistants. Yeah, you were hot shit. Yeah, yeah. To, yeah. Yeah. They were trying to make me happy. And so he walks up to me and he goes, man, I really, I missed out on this one, huh? Like I really, blew, I, I messed that up. And so I saw him in the hallway again and he brought it up again. He said, man. He pointed to the young lady that was working at the desk, a different young lady, and he said, you know, this guy came to me interviewing a few years back as an intern, and I missed out on him. And look at him now. He's one of the hottest engineers, da, da, da. And I pulled him aside, and I said, you know, I, I really want to talk to you about that because I, I want to address the elephant in the room. And I feel like it was because of, you know, you, you, you know, you, I, I, oh, I said, I said, well, what was your reasoning? Your reasoning at the time was, well, it just, it wasn't, you know, that kind of, I didn't look, I think he said something like, I didn't look the part. Oh, yikes. And I, and I wanted him to know that that was extremely insulting. Yeah. And I told him, I said, I said, you know, that was extremely hurtful. And for you to say, I didn't look the part, I know what you were saying. You were saying out of the four white men and one black man in, a t in an industry that's typically, you know, a job that's typically done by white males, I didn't look the part. And that's what you were trying to say. And whether you, in your heart of hearts, um, whether racism is something inside of you or embedded in you, that was very, very hurtful. And those are the things that you have to examine. I, I like relate into him, and he did not disagree. Not one. You can you can see the remorse in his face. Like yeah. he, I can tell he was truly, truly sorry and truly just ignorant to what he had even said or how he had even handled it. And I think that's what a lot of this conversation, a lot of the conversation is about the overt racism, but a lot of it is about the covert and the uh, systemic and the um, the more uh, yeah. casual racism. They, it's, which is a much more insidious aware. thing. Yeah. Yeah, 
Yeah, because sometimes people aren't even aware of the things that they say and the things that they do that are hurtful. And we've all done it. I've, I've, I just spoke to a group of black kids where we may make jokes that we have to now kind of re- recap and relook at. We've, we've all made jokes. Well, I shouldn't say we've all. I'm, I'm not accusing everybody. But I'm saying it is commonplace in certain cultures to make jokes about Mexicans and doing your lawn and X, Y, Z. And all that shit is hurtful. It's really hurtful. And we got to really examine the way we joke, the way we think of things, the way we think of people. Um, and, and so I think that's the fight that's the most prevalent is getting to the heart of making sure that somebody even understands how their actions that may seem benign to them can be very, very uh, hurtful and insulting to others. Leslie, when you talk about showing up early at that interview and going against, you know, four other candidates who are white, um, you know, there's this reminder of like when President Obama came into office and he had to work doubly, triply hard because there was this expectation. And so it's like, not only do you have to do a gigantic job, you know, of running this country and trying to rescue it from the, you know, the economic despair that we had in the uh, mid 2000s, to to above that not make any mistakes. How did you feel that what was your experience like uh, being in the music industry? Did you have to did you feel like you had to work doubly hard? Yeah, of course. That is every, I will tell you, I can probably speak in blanket terms where I can tell you, if not every, is a huge, overwhelming percentage of black people where that's our experience. That has been our lives from day one. That's something our grandparents told us, something our parents told us. No, There's, there's probably no black person in America who hasn't heard, you got to work twice as hard yeah. to get half as much. That is just what we've always known. We've always been told, you know, I've always been talked to about, hey, when the cops stop you, you got to be respectful. You can't be the angry black man. And this is before police brutality was really um, in 4K video on our phones. This is the life we knew as black people in this country. There was always this sense of you got to work twice as hard to get half as much. You know, we all know that Obama, if Obama said off fraction of the things that trump says oh it'd be just all over fox news oh yeah he would be yeah over he would be done they would have impeached obama just on a comment this this man has been accused of rape he has said some really vile and foul things towards i mean he said grab her by the p-u-s-s-y any presidential candidate on this planet that was black or not even close. Like you, Obama couldn't get away with saying nothing. Even he wore a tan suit. Yeah. <laughs> and so, right, right. That was like his biggest. I think his biggest controversy. Correct. But yes, yeah. that's been a part of who we are as black people in this country. That's embedded in us. That's it's understood. It's one of those things where we didn't for a while. I, I can speak for myself on this one. I didn't even get mad about it anymore. I just knew that's the way it was. I had to work twice as hard i had to make sure uh, in, in my neighborhood like if if my we had one little you know the little um yellow weeds that grow yes. up in your grass Dandelions. we we had we had one one time and they sent us a picture from the homeowners association and sent us this notice and sent us the, a, a copy of the bylaws that said you can't have weeds in your yard this whole thing right our neighbors every weekend 
he's out there playing um um what's the the game where you throw the oh, oh the cornhole um, cornhole yeah cornhole he plays cornhole with his friends they get drunk and every night they leave a ton of beer cans all over his lawn and the next morning sometimes he doesn't clean them up the next morning so like if he does he does on friday nights for saturday and sunday his whole lawn might just be covered in beer cans and because he's white i'm i'm almost positive he's never got a notice about it and it's those those are the kind of things we live with all the time and it's it's come to a point where we've become so numb to it that those things do get embedded in our culture and how we improve and i think what has happened in these times is i think where the police brutality and all the attention has gotten on this stuff is it's really a credit to technology i think iphones and being able to record things in 4k video and have it as plain as day and when you have such overwhelming and damning evidence white people can no longer say oh you're just making that up oh you're just playing the slavery card or the race card or that when you can see plain as day somebody getting murdered on video you, you can't dispute that and so i think that was a huge part of the awakening in this country is technology made us all cameramen it made us all journalists and it it forced the hand of the casual person to just be like that's right exactly you can't ignore a murder you just can't um leslie you grew up in the u.s virgin islands um what was your experience there well when did you come over and i mean like when i say come over i mean like to the mainland because i mean obviously it's a yeah yeah, um, after high school. Um, so I, I, we spent time traveling when I was a kid, but for, for the most part, I spent most of my years in the islands and then came over right after high school, went to Full Sail. I left, as soon as I graduated high school, I went straight to Full Sail University in Orlando. Um, knew that's where I wanted to be, knew that's where I wanted to do. But even there in the islands, I mean, you experience, even in, a, a, you know, in the islands where, you know, 80% of the island is black, uh, I'm sure it's more, but you, you, we did experience, you know, there were times when I remember my dad getting stopped by a white cop. I remember the first time, this is the first time I ever really saw racism in in plain view. We were out riding around one night, like we always do on Sundays. And my dad drove down into a hotel um, driveway. You had to kind of drive down into it because it was sitting on mm. the edge of the hill. And he realized, oh, this is a, he couldn't really go in without having a hotel key. And so he kind of started to back out, but the hill was so steep. My, his car started like, you know, burning rubber. And so he kind of just had to shimmy the car around for quite a few turns to get it, to go back up the hill forward. As he was coming up the hill, a cop was right at the top of the hill. So he asked my dad to get out the car. And he said, yeah, we heard that somebody was in the driveway and the hotel staff didn't know who you were. And dah, dah, dah. he said, yeah, but I was just turning around and we were just going on a drive and didn't really know anything. No hotel personality personnel came out, you know, dah, dah, dah. and the guy told my dad to put his hands on the car. My dad was like, officer, I didn't do anything. I'm just turning around. Like, you know, and my dad is like in a calm voice and and he is yelling at the top of his lungs at my dad. It was just, it was really awful. It was just one of those things where I just saw the rage in that man's face. And I just was like, this is ridiculous. Like, you're like yelling at my dad. My dad is like super calm and like, okay, officer, just 
out driving on a Sunday with my sons and this is kind of what we do. And yeah. So that was the first time when I really saw it up close and I was just like, man. man. Um, growing up there, it was you, your folks and, and how many siblings? Uh, me and my brother and my mom and my, my mom and dad got divorced when I was like in the seventh grade, I believe, or sixth grade. Um, and my dad and my stepmom lived not too far from us. So we all kind of got along. It, it was a little bumpiness at first, but I mean, my stepmom, they're still together to this day. Love her just the same. And we all just kind of made it work. And so, but yeah, we I grew up mostly in the single parent type environment. Cause even when my mom and dad were married, he wasn't there a lot, that kind of thing. What did your parents do for a living? My dad sold uh, insurance. He had an insurance agency, built a nice business there in the island. And my mom was um, working in the admissions department at the University of the Virgin oh, very Islands dope. forever. She worked there. Yeah, yeah. She worked there most of my young life. And she worked at a summer program called the Upward Bound Program that would inspire high school kids to go to college. And I would hang. That, that's where I spent all my summers. I would be around, like, even as a kid, I'd be around high school kids and just kind of hanging out and doing the summer programs and whatnot. How much is, is tourism a part of uh, everyday life down there? Uh, it's a huge um, part. It's, it's most islands, I can definitely speak for the Virgin Islands, um, the U.S. Virgin Islands, that's the main industry is tourism. Um, the cruise ships come in, uh, people vacation, you know, the Airbnb type, you know, vacation homes and people come and vacation there and the beaches are pristine. I mean, we have two... In the Virgin Islands, we have two of the top 10 beaches in the world. One is on St. John and one is on St. Thomas. It's called Megan's Bay. It's an amazing beach. Um, so you, the tourism is just ridiculous. Uh, what is the difference between... I've, I've never been to the Virgin Islands. I've also never been to the Caribbean, actually. But, like, so what is the difference between what the tourists see and what is the real uh, island? Oh, yeah. So what the tourists see is very much catered to the tourists. you got hotels, resorts. In most cases, on most islands, what you would find is if you, like, for instance, you go to Jamaica, you will spend most of your time on the resort. Go to St. Thomas, you're going to spend most of your time on the resort. Some islands like St. Thomas and other islands where there's like a downtown market and you go shopping for whatever local goods. And like, for instance, in Grenada, they have, they're known for their spices. So you go downtown to the little market. All the downtown areas and the market areas usually cater to the cruise ships. So they usually centered around wherever the cruise ships pull in. Um, but there's a very different side of life on for those of us who are from there. I mean, it's, you know, I went, my high school was smack dab in the middle of the roughest neighborhood. Um, you know, it was, it was like, there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of really, in, in a lot of islands, it's, it's a, a large amount of poor. There's some rich but the middle class isn't as booming in a lot of islands. In the Virgin, in the U.S. Virgin Islands, it was slightly different. You saw more of a middle class because of the American culture, because we're owned by the U.S. We are U.S. citizens, so you see that culture infused to it. There's a lot more middle class um, going, but from a lot of islands, a lot of the Caribbean islands, it's you know like islands like Haiti and, and Jamaica. What you have is just a lot of poor and a, a few rich. And how does music uh, enter your life while you're growing up? So um, as a kid, I, I loved music. I used, my dad had a huge collection. I think my dad's record collection is responsible for my love of different types of music because mm. you would go through my dad's record collection and there would be Shaka Khan records and then there would be um, 
Donny Hathaway, and then right behind that, it would be Led Zeppelin, and it would be, so it was just, you know, Steve Miller Band, and all these records, and my dad loved all kind of, Kenny Rogers, and so he, his, his musical palette was so diverse that I think that was the thing that really got me into a passion for music in general, because there was so much to listen to. I listened to all kind of different records. I would, so my ritual was every night, my dad had these huge headphones, over ear headphones, hmm. look like, look like the headphones that a pilot puts on, on the <laughs> airplane. And he had those and a you know turntable and all that. So my ritual every night I would sneak out and just put on the headphones and listen to records. And what was so cool about that is because it's in the headphones, it won't disturb anybody. And I was just a night I was always a night owl. So this career fits me perfectly because I just would there were nights when my mom would catch me. She would come out at like four in the morning and be like, <laughs> Go to sleep. It's a school night. I, every <laughs> night I would do it. Every night. I never got any sleep. And what record like blew your mind? Um, one of the first records to really blow my mind, just sonically and musically, was Stevie Wonder, uh, "Songs in the Key of Life." Yeah, yeah. yeah. That record, liter- can I curse? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That record fucked me up. Like, <laughs> I was just like. I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, you got to be kidding me. I, 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 will, I will share this. I remember listening to records like that. Steve Miller was actually one of them, too. Um, just listening to the, the, you know, time keeps on slipping. Mm-hmm, slipping. Yeah. Just the, and every, I mean, there were times, I will tell you, I will share this on this podcast. There were times I would sit there as a young boy listening to music, and I would just start crying. Just because yeah. it was just such a rush of like, I can't believe this is so damn good. Like, oh my God. And then, of course, the album that just totally wrecked my entire life was um, Off the Wall. When Off yeah. the Wall came out, I was like, you gotta be kidding me. And then Thriller. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. Like, my head won. I just, my head like almost wanted to explode every single night when I was out there listening to records. But but I would have songs in the key of life. Yeah. Were you putting the needle on the edge of the, the record and just letting it play all the way through? Yeah. I would just yeah. put it on there, let it play. Sometimes I would skip. And then, of course, when hip-hop became a thing, when I discovered hip-hop, oh, that opened up a whole new world. I was, like, buying extra needle packs, and I would put... So what I would do is buy an extra needle pack, put my needle on there, and I would be scratching all night, <laughs> doing shit. And then I would put my dad's needle back on there just so I don't <laughs> mess his needle up. Because I never wanted him to know how much I messed with his stuff. Yeah. I mean, so you were still was, fucking up the records. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, let me tell you the funniest story. So one night, my dad was up in the living room. He was sitting in the chair, but it was like in the dark. It was in a corner. I didn't see him. So I go out there, and I'm listening to records, and I'm jamming, and I'm just sitting there. Probably like two hours goes by. I finally put his needle back on, and I put the headphones back, and I'm straightening everything. I always like to put everything back exactly how I found it. And as I'm walking away, he goes, did you have a good time? He scared the shit out of me. And yeah, so that was our little moment when I kind of discovered that he knew I did that. And he never really said anything. (laughs) By the end of high school, listen, your mom works for university. How sure were you that you were going to go elsewhere beyond there? Like, and, and what drew you to Full Sail University and Orlando, Florida itself? That is an interesting story. So yes, because the, for the very reason you highlighted, because my mom 
worked at a university. She was the first in her family, you know, in her family to go to college. You know, secondary education was this huge, huge deal in the eighties. Um, so I knew early on in my life that that was not going to be my path. I knew that traditional college, traditional education, that's not me. And I spent most of my young life looking at adults. They would work these jobs that they hated. Um, happy hour was on Friday. And for one hour of their entire week, they had a, had a ball. And I just, I was like, that's not my life. Yeah. There's no way I'm going to be complaining about my job all week long, looking forward to one hour and then going to church and then it, 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 that, that rinse repeat life that I saw adults doing when I was a kid. I was Couldn't like, be you. No, yeah. dude, <laughs> that is not going to be my life. So I was very determined early on that that was not going to be my life. My mom, on the other hand, was not so determined. Um, so when I when I told her I wanted to pursue a career in music, she flipped out. Um, it, the arguments got progressively worse. And then by my senior year, when she realized that I was serious, she didn't talk to me for a few months. She just couldn't even deal with me. She was just wow. like, you know what? Yeah, she was, we would get in the car, she would take me to school. She just wouldn't say much to me because she was so disappointed and heartbroken that that's the path I wanted to choose. And then with my guidance counselor, I would go in her office every day and bitch about, I don't want this to be my life. And, and thank God for her, she recognized that that would not have been the right path for me. And she was the one that found Full Sail wow. University it was a little pamphlet. And so imagine this is the lady who was tasked with trying to push me towards going to college. And she was the one that was like, nah, let's find your, your passion. Let's find your dream. I think that's so great because so often you hear about guidance counselors who are just like, you know, doing the least, you know, yeah. like directing yeah, no, kids she, in the broadest, you know, sense of the word. I, yeah, I owe her so much um, for pushing me in this direction and hearing me and really. And I'm telling you that it was a day. I walked up to the ramp of, of school and I saw her at the edge of the ramp with this little pamphlet in her hand and she had this smile on her face. I didn't know what the hell was in her hand, but for some reason I just knew, okay, we're on to something. And I got, I walked up to her and she showed me the little pamphlet for Full sale, and I was like, I read it and I was looking at it like, this might be the place. So we did a tour, me and my dad um, went to Florida. We did a tour of the facility and when we got there, I was like, I am home, this is it. These are my people. This is where I'm supposed to be. It's like I walked in the doors and like the angels started singing. Like, <laughs> well, for like, those people who don't home. know, Orlando is in central Florida. This is not near yes. beaches. This is not near water. This it's is, near yes. Disney World. Yeah, near Disney World and Universal and all that. Yeah. Yeah, and the suburb that Full Sail is in is called Winter Park, so it's not even near all the <laughs> So you are going to, uh, you know, this, this sort of uh, insular place where you can, I guess, theoretically, just focus on your craft. You're making it sound like the NBA. Well, it is like the NBA because the NBA is going down there now to do this bubble, uh, you know, right. in, in, in Orlando. Uh, what did you make of Orlando? And is there anything down there to explore outside of drugs of, of your music? <laughs> um, you know what? Orlando was a perfect setting um, in a sense of I, w I will tell you this, the, the campus, even then, in 1991, Full Sail was a very much smaller campus. But to have a place where they had the actual boards, they had studios, they had all the gadgets, all the gear, that was my whole world. That small 
square footage of a campus at the time, that was everything. I was just glad to be there. I never left campus. So for me, quote unquote, Orlando really was full sale for, yeah. for, for that whole year was that was my world. That was my space. I was I was so happy to be around people who actually spoke the language that I spoke that wanted to, I actually got to learn to work in a recording studio and be around all this gear and all this terminology and everybody around me actually liked Star Wars and it was amazing. <laughs> I was like, it was like, you know, you just found a pack of nerds and it's like, I was the biggest nerd in the 80s and at the time being a nerd wasn't cool. Yeah, yeah to be yeah. able to find my tribe in the early 90s, this is my tribe. I walk with, we're all nerds and we're like doing what we love and so that was my whole world. I didn't even explore the theme parks and go to clubs and none of that. I just I was so immersed in just beat machines and touching gear and tape machines and consoles. It was amazing. Well, what was your what was your music experience like before you went to Full Sail? Like, I mean, like, because I can't imagine that you were in a bunch of studios back home, and I can't believe, I can't imagine that you had like a bunch of boards or anything. So, like, what were you just just in love with the idea of it? Yeah, but what I would do um, to get my musical fix, I would hang out. So the Calypso bands, Calypso obviously was the prevalent music in the mm-hmm. islands, along with reggae and, and a lot of like hip hop. Hip hop really kind of infiltrated in that way too. And so because it was a young people's kind of thing. Um, but the Calypso bands, what they would do is they would set up, they would have like a bunch of drum machines, daisy chain, they would have a truck with speakers, <laughs> and they would play Calypso in the streets and this, you know, the carnival parades and stuff. That's how the musical celebrations would happen. I would always be the little kid with the Calypso bands. I would, I, it first started off, I would just ask them, hey, can I help y'all wrap up cables and carry uh, amps up to the truck? And, and my exchange was, I just I want to help you guys and just let me be around. Just let me be around. Just let me hang around and look and learn. And I learned how to hook up amps and I would wrap cables and I would carry equipment for those guys. And in turn, they would just let me hang around. And then wow. I became one of the guys. And so I was always in that mode of making sure I bring value to a situation. And in turn, they just let me learn and let me sit around and look and hook up the amps. And before you know it, you know, a year down the road, I'm the guy that calling for everything. Like, hey, Leslie, how do you? Daisy Chan, how do you buy amp this so and so? And yeah, you know how to hook up these MIDI keyboards, and you know, because I was I was that kind of person where if you just gave me the opportunity, I would soak it all in, and I would learn, and then I would learn on top of that, and then I would get books and learn on top of that, and you know, so. So was your first time uh, looking at an SSL board at Full Sail? Yes, first time actually seeing an SSL board was at Full Sail. Um, I, I was so just. I, I, I fell in love right then. I'm telling you, when I walked through those doors and I saw the equipment, I was like, yep, this is where I'm supposed to be. And so the way it works is, I guess, like any other college where there's like, you know, specific classes about specific things. So ultimately, you know, it's it's you learn, but you also get time to sort of like, I guess, work with bands and, and record with artists and sort of like try and fail and, and you know, build off of that, correct? Right. Exactly. Exactly. You, you just kind of you figure it out. Um, it, it was the, the cool thing about in an environment like that is you get to break things. You get to actually touch things. We a lot of creative people learn by touching and doing. We learn by turning the knobs and pushing every button. You know, I get a new card. I want to get in and push every button and know what every button does. And, 
you know, um, you know, a lot of us don't like to read the manual first. We just want to push buttons and destroy everything and figure it all out. And, you know, so. And what about the balance between like being very technical and sort of having this sixth sense about things? Yeah, it's, 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 that's the thing. It's learning how to hone your craft, learning to understand that you do have a talent and a gift inside, but then learning how to navigate technology and using all the technology to your advantage. Um, and that was always my theme as an engineer, as a mixer, is making sure I understand all the nerdiest technical jargon, but also understanding that music is about how it makes you feel. And you have to learn how to strip away the technology and be an artist at the same time. So it's it's it was such an interesting um, it's such an interesting um, mix of um, understandings and a mix of awareness and all that stuff is understanding how to um, balance all those things. You were cutting tape and you were uh, wrapping you know, cables. Yeah, and... wrapping cables, and you're working the boards. Uh, what is right. your first experience recording outside of Full Sail like? You learn by experience, and you, you figure out that there's things that you learn in books, and then there's things you learn in life. And it was interesting, you know, all the things you, you learn at Full Sail and learn in school and in a, a school setting, it's about the gear and the technology and how to use it and how to use things and make things work to your advantage. But in the real world, what you're really learning is psychology and learning how to deal with different personalities and different people and different subtleties and what to say and what not to say. And your mood can determine how a whole album turns out or, you know, what I mean, all those things, the soft skills. What was the prevalent, uh, you know, hip hop music sound for you back then? Are we talking about Naughty by Nature? Are we talking about like Wu-Tang and this sort of like dusty sample driven yep. stuff? Or was it like Miami bass music? For me, it was more sort of New York, Wu-Tang, Naughty by Nature, sample-driven. Uh, I, I, I had a nice eclectic blend of hip-hop. I liked all the West Coast stuff. I wasn't too much into like the Miami bass movement, but I, I rocked with it. Um, there were certain things I liked. I liked the sound of a lot of the Miami um, bass records. I loved the, the, the heavy bass and the I loved the drive of, of, of it more than the actual like lyrics or songs. Uh, but I was definitely into like the lyrical hip hop. I was into, you know, all the underground DOS effects, EPMD. You know, I was that guy. I'm sure there were a lot of like older engineers uh, of all kinds who probably had a set way of doing things. And that's how they would, you know, teach the next generation. Did you ever feel the need to push, you know, your audio and, and take it to another level that maybe was was sort of frowned upon by an, by an older generation? Uh, of course. And the, the added bonus I had, though, is I had the young producers that I was working with or working for that were they were the driving force behind it. But I learned. Had to make those drums bang. That you had to make the snares bang. That you had to take some of that damn reverb off. Like everything <laughs> in the eighties had, everything in the eighties had so much reverb that that was the sound that a lot of people were used to. And then what we realized is, actually, a whole lot of reverb wasn't cool in the nineties, and it was like backing off the reverb and using more delays. And so a lot of older engineers, of course, they would like look at me and be like, "What is wrong with you? Like, what are you doing?" <laughs> but I always had the added advantage of like the producer always having my back in that sense well when did you leave uh orlando um 
or have you never left and, and you know <laughs> it's, it's or, still in your yeah, heart orlando's yeah. a state of mind <laughs> yes uh, yeah let's go with that yeah. <laughs> no but um i um i left in 92 i graduated full sale in 92 and but i go back often i go back to full sale often i do a lot of mentoring i you know talk to the students i you know do a lot of do a lot of stuff in the in the full sale community full sale world so and, and so you went from Orlando up to Atlanta? Yep. Yep. And did you have any real like connection? Well, not not even connection. Like what was the plan? So my plan was this. When I was in uh, Full Sail, when I was at school, I read an article about Dallas Austin and he was opening this label and I saw that um LA and Babyface had recently moved to Atlanta. And they started LaFace Records. So I kind of started seeing this buzz of Atlanta being, you know, because it was a predominantly black city in the South. And then people are moving there to start record labels. It's, you know, predominantly black music or hip hop and R&B type thing. And that was the rise of, I mean, 90s R&B and hip hop was, you know, really centered around Atlanta. And so I kind of saw that happening and I was like, determined when i read that article i was like i want to work at dark studios it stands for dallas austin recording projects mm-hmm. and i wanted to work there when i saw that article i didn't know how to find it they didn't have any contact info so i got to atlanta i went interviewed at that one studio i told you about doppler when i told you that story didn't get that gig got a gig in a studio called cat spa studios that's no longer there but when i got there I knew right away I wasn't going to stay at Caspar because they did like a lot of commercials like for Delta and all this stuff. And it was a lot of boring, you know, tape cutting and da da da. Lucky enough, Caspar was one of the only studios at the time that had multiple tape machines that could make uh, copies of reels. Mm. And a reel came over. My first day, look at how God works. So my <laughs> first day over there, a reel from Darp Studios comes over to Caspar Studios because they needed copies. They asked me to do the copies. They had showed me how to make the duplicates. So on the reel is all the information for Dark Studios because it wow. wasn't listed at the time. <laughs> so I just copied that bad boy down on my lunch break. This is the first day. I Crazy. Call, um, his name was John Rogers at the time, the studio manager. I call him on my lunch break and I said, hey, I would like to interview for internship position. He said, well, we can't pay you right now. I was like, I don't care. I just want to be around. I want to learn. He was like, oh, come over this afternoon if you can. So as soon as I show up to the studio, as soon as I finish Cat's Bar at like three something, I show up to Dark. I do something for John and then I never left. That's incredible. That's day one. <laughs> day one. I didn't so, even work at Cat's Bar for a full day. <laughs> what did your parents think of, of your situation early days down there in Atlanta? Were they like, you know, what are you doing with your life and when are you coming home? That was kind of my mom. My dad was always very kind of supportive. My dad understood the entrepreneurial, the you got to do what you love kind of thing. My mom was always like, uh, I don't get it. <laughs> and it's funny because even now I've explained what I've, what I do to my mom a million times and she still <laughs> doesn't get it. She still wouldn't be able to explain it to somebody. And it's funny, I have I have family members. It's funny. So a couple of years ago, I went to my dad's 70th birthday celebration. And so my wife and kids, and we all go down. And a couple, my, my wife tells me this after we leave because she knew, she knew how bad I would have gotten. One of my aunts went up to my wife and said, hey, so when's your husband going to get a real job? Man. And 
It never another ends. One of my aunts, <laughs> yeah, another one of my aunts asked me in front of everybody. She was like, so how's the little music thing going? Man. And it's like, so they have this perception of this thing as being a little hobby. You know, like, how's the little music thing going? I'm like, it's my career. And by the way, I bought like several houses. And, like, you know what I mean? So like... They're yeah, like, yeah, like, but you're still recording and mixing out of your car, so you know, right, yeah. right, yeah, things can't so be that good. That. Yeah. yeah. Um. So okay. So you you meet Dallas and you're you're interning at DARP. What is the atmosphere like over there in uh in ninety two ninety three? Also, what was your first time meeting Dallas like? Um, it was interesting. Um, it was DARP was, you know, a bunch of young people running a label, running around trying to learn how to do this, doing it on the fly being successful, having like hits after hits, like TLC and ABC and da da da. So it was it was so much chaos, but it was great energy. Um, you know, there were some drugs flying around here and there, but nothing I participated in. I was always the one who was like, Okay, I gotta stay focused. So I wasn't smoking weed and by the Nobody way, some drugs it. can help you focus. I'm not. This isn't like an <laughs> ad for say, drugs. Cause, yeah, because yeah, because at the time, I mean, weed was highly illegal. So yeah, they were all smoking weed, and you know, nobody did any like hard drugs like coke or anything like that that I saw in in our vicinity. Um, but it was a lot of partying, and they 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 had a lot of fun. But they were making hit records, and it was fun to be a part of all of it. I mean, we were just kids and just learning as we go, and. When I met Dallas, he was, you know, just a couple years older than me, and we're all just kids, and we all just became very cool, and it was something similar to what happened at Full Sail, where you just bring a whole bunch of people together who, in their usual, normal, mundane circles of life, were the outcasts, but you put them together, and they make magic, and it was the same way at Full Sail, where you got a whole bunch of people who, all of us from our different backgrounds, in our own um, circumstances were considered nerds and the people who were the outcasts and the not, I wasn't the cool person in high school, you know what I mean? But I'm one of my, the, my few classmates who I've driven Ferraris and Bentleys and, you know, did all the cool stuff as an adult, but at the time I wasn't the cool kid. So at Darby it was the same thing where you bring all these people around who are super creative, not usually dressing like everybody else, a little to the left, but you put us all together and we made magic. And so yeah. that's what it was like. It was just a bunch of young, hungry, wanting to do things our own way, wanting to live by our own rules type of cats who, you know, we didn't we didn't walk too far outside the lines. Like I said, everybody was smoking weed, but you know, nobody was doing any criminal activity or doing anything crazy. It was just we're having fun and making records. Yeah, well, talk about, you know, Young Energy, and you talk about Another Bad Creation, you talk about TLC. What was it like being around those two groups, and, and what, you know, fan, how fans would react, and what they meant to that city? It was super fun. It was always a good time, always a fun time, never a dull moment. If you saw our typical days, it looked as if we played more than we worked, which we probably did. But <laughs> it was just an efficient formula because the work we did was magical. So a lot of times people couldn't understand it. A lot of labels would be complaining. Like they would send the artists to work with Dallas and they would be like, man, I mean, what's going on? You guys been working for a week. We haven't gotten any music or anything. And Dallas is like, no, that's not how this works. I got to get to know him. We got to have fun. We got to hang out. We got to, and then we'll give you some magical records. So it was like that with the TLC records where, you know, uh, some of the execs from Arista would be complaining and you know fussing at Dallas and being like, "Man, you've been y'all guys been in the studio for three months and 
we don't have any singles and what's going on we don't have any records and there would be pressure and pressure and then they'd be like well we got three weeks to turn in the album and in the last three weeks we'd give you crazy sexy cool and it would be amazing you know what i mean so it's like that's where a lot of the magic came from sometimes it's all of the playing all of the water balloon fights all of the food fights that stuff culminated in a certain camaraderie that came through on the records yeah i mean well so t-boz talked about how when when uh their regular engineer didn't show up how she chose you because you were an intern who always knew what what a uh, height her mic stand should be and knew when Chili walked in that she wanted everybody out of the room and to turn off all the lights. What was um, Lisa's uh, recording process like? Um, Lisa was interesting. She was a bit of a loose cannon in a sense. Um, she just kind of... She didn't really have a process, I guess is the way to explain it. She just kind of flowed... Did what, did what she wanted to do. Um, she was very, um, she was just a loose cannon. So there was no real process, per se, to Lisa, if that makes sense. Yeah. There was no process to that. It was just more so, she didn't have a thing. She didn't have a, oh, you got to make sure you get this right before um, she comes. Or there was no thing with her. And what kind of hours are we talking about for you? Like, would you be there 24 hours a day? Were you doing, like, a morning shift or a night shift? When were you typically there? 24-7. I spent the better part of the 90s at dark. And we did everything together. So even in the times when, like, for instance, we would all be at the studio. My apartment was right down the street from the studio, so I would, like, give... Tion, T-Boz, I would give her like the keys to my apartment and be like, yeah, you can go shower or you can go change or Dallas would go down there and shower and change and we would be there for weeks on end. Um, we even vacationed together. So like I my, I developed a love for snowboarding because Dallas wanted to go on a, the first year when we all got cool, like in 93, the end of 93, we all like got super cool and we're working together a lot and Dallas was like, let's go on a ski trip. And he had been skiing before, and I had never been. This was my first time. You know, I'm a kid from the islands. Yeah. Had really, you seen snow yeah. before? I had seen snow before. I'd visited relatives in, like, New York and different places. But I'd been in snow. I just haven't, like, actually played in it and snowboarded and skied. I'd never skied, never snowboarded. So he was like, let's go on a ski trip. And we're like, okay. So we all went. So we all vacationed together. We did things together. And like I said, that's where I developed my love for skiing because I remember the first time we went, I just fell in love with skiing. And the second trip, we went a second time in the same season. We were like, we had so much fun. We were like, let's do that again. So the first time we went to Vail, second time we went to Aspen. And Man, we went what to a Aspen. Life. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was like, like I said, I mean, everybody was making a ton of money and just having fun. And we went to, um, the second time we went to Aspen, when we went to Aspen, I said, let me try snowboarding. Got on a snowboard and fell in love with it. I've been snowboarding <laughs> ever since. I've been snowboarding every every season. I've been going at least two trips since 93. Every wow. season. And even now with my family, we go on trips every year. My daughters uh, snowboard now. They love it. Um, it's just, yeah. Well, wait, I think we're missing a crucial step here because you went from being an intern at DARP to working there. But, like, when how long was that process in between like interning to working there and then were you supplementing your income in any way to 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 be able to pay rent on this apartment that you were never in 
Yeah, um, so what I did is, initially I was an intern. I would work at FedEx and UPS because at the time, FedEx and UPS were very flexible. They let you kind of set your hours in a sense. Like, as long as you got your work done kind of thing or you could switch up. It's kind of like the reason why a lot of people choose wait, being like waiters or waitresses in the in the um, For in actors, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. you can always switch your shift with someone. It's easy to kind of take gigs on the fly and swap swap out with somebody else so that was my gig ups fedex i would do that i'd be at the studio every other waking hour i hardly slept i would get some sleep during the morning hours like and then i would get up go to work during the day and then intern all night um i interned for the better part of about a year so even when we were on the ski trip i was technically by the time we went to the ski trip in 93 i was i was assisting by then i was an assistant engineer so it kind of went from i was an intern and then i started assisting all the engineers then i became the assistant engineer where all the top engineers that would come into dark to work they would put me with them and then i became a recording engineer i recorded all of dallas and stuff and then i became a mix engineer because i started doing rough mixes and that i just kind of worked my way up to where they started liking my mixes better than the actual mixers. <laughs> and yeah, it was actually a cool transition. So one thing I'm always proud of is I never had to like lobby for a position. My work always spoke for itself and it always was the thing that catapulted me to the next level. When you talk about Atlanta in the mid nineties and you think about people like Dallas Austin, you think about Jermaine Dupree, you think about TLC, you think about organized noise and outcast and everything that was going on in a very black city. What's it like being young and black and, and in music and really like feeling a part of something big? It was amazing. And like, it, it was, it was, it was such an interesting time because like you just pointed out, you're, I'm in a, a predominantly black city, and this is something I'd never seen in my entire life where a lot of the black people that I was around, they were doing well, like like rich. Like we were, we were making tons of money in the 90s. And even before I started making money, it was still being around that culture of people doing well, people execs at labels and execs at this company and the Coca-Cola execs and all were, you know, uh, there were there was a lot of diversity in our in this city, and it was interesting to see some. I'd just never seen that before. I'd never seen black people doing so well on such a large scale. I always thought Atlanta was like it was amazing. It was like in the nineties, Atlanta was Wakanda. It was like <laughs> it was amazing. It was like you know everything. Everybody was doing well. It was a lot of money flowing around. All the labels were doing well. The Face, So So Deaf, Rowdy Records, everybody was doing well. Well, who's awesome. somebody from a different camp that you like really grew close to? Somebody that you weren't like necessarily in the studio with twenty four hours a day, but that you still had a connection to and you would hang out with. Oh, um, uh, I, I can name quite a few people. I mean, it was just people. A lot of people at the La Face um, office, the staff, um, Shanti Dawes. Yeah, um, was a real good friend of mine. Uh, we hung me, her, and Tion. Me, Shanti, Tion, and Dallas hung out really tough. Like we were always hanging out. Uh, we used to go to, like I said, we went on vacations together. We we would go all over the place. We would be sometimes. I remember when we were supposed to be doing fan mail. We were out in L.A. and we started working on the fan mail album. Yeah, and me, Shanti, and Tion, and Dallas, we would sneak off and go to Universal every day and ride the rides. <laughs> Because Dallas just wasn't feeling inspired. So he was like, we're just going to go to Universal every day until I feel inspired. And that Wait. went on for like 
two, three weeks. Every day, we would just go to Universal and ride all the rides. When Disneyland is right there. <laughs> oh, we were doing... We would do Disney too, but Universal was just super close to where we were. <laughs> this is what I'm getting out of this. Like, you just do not fuck with uh, Disney. <laughs> um, when no, you guys were recording that. fan mail, uh, did you did you feel the expectations on your shoulders, and and how did that ultimately uh, turn out for for you? Um, yeah, there were after Crazy Sexy Cool. There was a lot of pressure on the group, a lot of pressure on Dallas, but. That's, I think, part of that process when we first started out. Are you there? Hello? Yeah, yeah, we're still here. Okay. Just had to adjust my earpiece. When we first started out, that was the thing is there was a ton of meetings. There was a lot of tense. Um, I've seen this process over and over again where you come off a super successful album, um, and now it's time to make the next album, and everybody's nervous and tense. And what Dallas realized early on is we cannot do it this way. We can't drive ourselves crazy in trying to make this mega next thriller. You know, everybody was in pressure mode. And Dallas was like, no, we are going to go to Universal and go to Disney and go to the beach. And we're just going to have fucking fun. We have a little more money now. So our front is a little different, but we're just going to have fun until we get back in that zone of not giving a shit and then the great records will come because his thing was this is not how we made crazy sexy cool we didn't Mm. sit in rooms and have meetings and try to strategize and try to work 24 7 and come up with this monster amazing album we were just having fun and happened to make a hit hit record so dallas's theme was let's just always do that let's just always have fun and happen to make hit records yeah, I mean, so, like, what, what what was the what was the the record that came together the easiest on Crazy Sexy Cool? Say again. What was the record that came together easiest on Crazy Sexy Cool? Oh, Creep by far. Oh, Creep was like what a record. Creep was I. Creep was written based on a true story that was going on with Tion. <laughs> and Dallas, we would go to his mom's house. So his mom lived about thirty minutes away in Stone Mountain from the downtown Atlanta area. Mm-hmm. We would go to his mom's house to eat dinner every Sunday and have this big old meal. So on the way that Sunday, literally, he made the beat. He had just got an ASR-10, the, the keyboard yep. version. Yep. And he sampled um, his West Montgomery was the little um, boom, bling, bling. That was <laughs> West Montgomery. He sampled Slick Rick, the Guess Who's Back. Yep. Um, and then he had some other drums that he had sampled. And... Um, he just put the samples together, made the beat, made the track. And on the way to his mom's house, I was driving and he was in the passenger seat. I was driving his Porsche and he was in a passenger seat, just writing the song and playing, he was playing it back and on the cassette back and forth and just writing it. And by the time we got to his mom's house, he wrote it. He, we ate dinner. He called Tian. He said, meet me at the studio. I got the hit. I got it. I got it. Wow. Meet me at wow. the studio. And we went back that Sunday night and recorded it, knocked it out. <laughs> me, him, and Tian. It was just me, him, and Tian. We went back to the studio. I opened up the studio. It was just me, him, and Tian, and we knocked it out. We were in there all night. You know, it's it's impossible to recreate 
atmospheres like that and i think it's sort of unfair it's like not everything can be a motown not everything can be a Rockefeller. not everything can be you know you and dallas and and t-boz going to you know the studio for for that type of of record but but man when those things do come together that's got to be just unbelievable to 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 look back at it yeah it's, it's 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 crazy to think how some of these records got made like i said when i even think back on how much we used to just play and mess around I sometimes think back and be like, man, how did we get any work done? (laughs) Were you ever afraid to leave that that comfortable atmosphere that you had created with those people? Oh, absolutely. Um, I remember when I saw the writing on a wall when things were coming to an end, when you know new people started coming around and Dallas started really losing focus and he started partying more and. I just I saw the writing on the wall that okay these days in the '90s they're coming to an end, and it kind of came to an end right around the end of the '90s, right around 9/11 actually is when things kind of, you know, kind of took that turn. And I, you know, you see it coming, and it was one of those things where it in the moment you think I remember in '95 '96 I thought that's how my career was going to be forever. You just it's kind of like when you're making a lot of money, you think you're always going to be making a lot of money, or when you're at the height of your career. You think it's always going to be this great. And being young and naive like that, you know, you kind of tend to think that. And, um, it, you know, it, it was hard to kind of transition. But what I've learned with every transition in my career is it was for the better. It always pushes you to another great place. And who is the first person to sort of uh, lead you in a new, in a new direction? Um... You know, interestingly, it was Dallas. Dallas and I had a bit of a falling out. um, And it was that situation that propelled me to leave and head over to Patchwork and start working over there. Um, Of course, we patched things up, you know, right not too long after. I don't think it maybe a year or two went by and then we kind of saw each other and just kind of talked about it. And But I think sometimes it's those growing pains that people need. It's the growing pains of, I mean, we were so, we were like blood brothers for the better part of 10 years. And, you know, things just got to a point where we had a, a bit of disagreements and we were falling on. And I didn't like how much he was partying and the type of people he was partying with and the type of drugs he was doing. And it, you know, it caused friction. Yeah. And, but that friction is also what inspired me to go another way and grow on my own and him to go another way and grow on his own. And that, that is necessary at times. And we see it all the time in, in sports where, yeah, you could say if Kobe and Shaq had to stay together, they would have had X amount of championships. Right. But I don't know if they would have both became the men that they would have became. That's there's, a certain, there's a certain level of individual growth, even though painful, even though detrimental to the quote unquote championships that you could win. There's a certain level of growth that Kobe had to do without Shaq and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, but also, so when you go over to Patchwork, it, it couldn't have been an immediate thing that you just like one day you're you're uh, you're with Dallas, and then the next day you get the the job. How long was that rebound process? Well, you know what? Interestingly enough, if you say it was the same day again, of... I'm gonna get so pissed. I'm <laughs> no, gonna go. Like, oh, everything works say, out for Leslie. <laughs> I would tell you this though. Interestingly enough, in all of my transitions, whether it be from Cat Spot to Dark. From dark to patchwork, from patchwork to music box, from music box to icon, and from icon to Mean Street, where I am now. All of those transitions happened at kind of ill timing, 
But the rebound was so quick that it let me know I made either the right decision or that things were falling apart for the right reasons. Mm, wow. It was literally the day. So when um, the, the whole the dark story is a long story, but I'll shorten it by saying uh, Raphael Sadiq had came around and me and him became friends and he started pointing out some things and it kind of became obvious and then things kind of fell apart. When, when after 9-11, Raphael was stuck down here for a few weeks after 9-11 because they grounded all the flights. Mm. So me and him, when he was leaving, he told me, he said, look, I'm just going to let you know from an outside perspective, I can see all of this falling apart, X, Y, and Z, da-da-da. Not even a week later, I decided, you know what? Once me and Dallas fell out, I was like, well, I can't be working in his studio anymore. Packed up, got my stuff out, and... I'm trying to remember how the patchwork conversation came up. I believe, oh, I know what it was. I needed to mix something and the client had me do it at patchwork or wanted me to work at patchwork since I didn't want to work at dark. And then when I got there, met the studio manager, met the owner, and then everything flowed. So it was just like clockwork. And it literally happened within a week of me leaving dark. So, wow. so Raphael Sadiq comes down after nine eleven. You you transition over to, you know, to the new studio, and you're at Patchwork. Um, as you get into two thousand and two, how settled are you, and what kind of uh, like just earthquake shattering uh, feeling was it when you found out about the untimely death of uh, Left Eye? So I was, it's funny enough, I, was, I remember exactly where I was. I was literally sitting on the pool table at Patchwork when I found out. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm flowing. I get over there. Um, I had just met Cash Money. I just met Manny Fresh and Cash Money and all them. They had came in town and wanted to uh, mix that record Still Fly. And nobody really wanted to work with them because people had heard all these things about how bananas they are and how many mm-hmm. of them it wasn't. And it was like the Southern version of Wu-Tang and blah, blah, <laughs> blah. And I was just like, I'll do it. I'll, I'll definitely work with them. Let me let me work with them. Let me take a crack at them. And ended up one of my best friends came out of that. Me, me and Manny Fresh, me and him yeah. had companies together. I met my wife through Manny. Wow. Um, yeah. So like there was so many good things that just came out of taking a session. Where that nobody else wanted to take that thing. Also, real quick, uh, is he one of the one of the like uh, guys with the best sense of humor that there is? Yes. Yeah. He's funny as hell. We have always have a blast. We're really good friends. It's just he's my daughter's godfather. He's always godfather. My oldest daughter. Um, he's a trip. But <laughs> yeah, that friendship spawned out of taking those sessions. And yeah, so like yeah, a year later, um, you know, get that new. I I think I was. I was playing, I was up, oh, I know what it was. So we were all stuck in the studio because it was a um, tornado. It was a series of tornado warnings and a tornado had hit downtown Atlanta. And so we decided to just hunker down in the studio and just be there all night. Me and a couple of the other guys that worked there. And, you know, I think it was, um, I can't remember who the artist was, but we were all just there. And then my phone rings, I'm sitting on the pool table we were watching the news, like trying to figure out about the tornadoes and stuff. I'm sitting on the pool table, on the edge of the pool table. My phone rings and, and I pick up and it's Tian hysterically crying. And she couldn't even tell me for like, it took her like almost 20 minutes to get it out. And I thought 
something was wrong with her. So the whole time while she's crying and, you know, because we had, you know, we were close. Tiana and yeah. I are like best friends. I mean, she's my daughter's godmother. You yeah. know? So she, and I'm, I'm her daughter's godfather. So she and I are really close, really tight. And so she's, she's crying. I'm like, think I'm, I'm trying to go through every scenario in my head of like, what is this about? Like, I didn't know if her mother died. At first I thought her mother died and I just thought she just couldn't get it out. And it wasn't that. And then I thought it was something going on with her and it just, I couldn't. And then when she finally told me, I just, I sat on the floor and I just, I couldn't even breathe. I remember feeling like my chest was like not working. I remember saying to myself, damn, but I'm having a heart attack. Like what is going on with me? I can't breathe. I can't, I just could not function. And what did that, you know, you're a young guy. What, what did that sort of like, what, how did that impact you in terms of, you know, your own mortality and, and, you know, how to even look at the future? Um, you know what? I don't know that I thought about that much then. Um, I think that affected me later on as far as when, whenever you lose friends, I, I just recently lost a really good friend of mine. Um, yeah this was like a week ago um she got hit by a car oh my god um yeah and a really good friend of mine so when you when things like that happen you just kind of you do think about your own mortality and you know you you think about what does all this mean and why why do we go through so much stress and all this stuff and but with when that happened with lisa it was just such a big chunk of me was gone like i mean like i said i don't know if i did it any justice in describing it but we spent so much time together like for 10 years tian lisa rosanda dallas shanti all of these people were just my life for 10 years straight it's these are the only people i hung out with the only people i worked with the only people i went on vacation with it was we were in each other's lives so much it was ridiculous we all had keys to each other's houses we all come and went as we pleased. So that kind of loss was just devastating. It was just, it. I just sat there thinking about all the good times and all the crazy times. And, you know, just, you just, all the thoughts just flood through your head. So um, as you, as you move forward, as we all do after, after loss, um, do you find yourself uh, diving back into your work? Do you find yourself uh, finding escape? from you know just uh you know mixing a record or being around artists or, or or did you have to avoid it all um for me it was easy to get back to work work was always mixing and, and music it is so burnt into my dna that it's not that for me it's not the thing that i have to escape to or the thing that i need to break from or it is as essential to me as walking or breathing. So it is just not, it's not even in that category for me of something that would even remotely be difficult to do. I mean, that night, the next day, whatever. It's just don't, that part of me, it's so burnt into me that I don't think, you know, I've, I've, I've gone through some things and, and nothing ever makes it seem as if, oh, I can't actually listen to this song or it's just that's such a burnt in part of my function. It's weird to describe, but I guess the best way I can describe it is as much as you can get up from the chair you're sitting in and walk to the door, all of the functions that it takes to put that together for your body to do that 
music is one of those functions for me. It's embedded in me to where I don't even, you know, I guess that's the best way I can describe it. It's just, there is no part of me that needs a break from music or doing what I do or mixing or, yeah, no. Yeah. When when you uh, look back at your career, there's certain artists who uh, are just more... Um, worldwide and and you know singular than than other artists and that's no disrespect to any artist but when you talk about somebody like madonna is there an aura around her is there a a sort of um a a different way that you walk or work with uh an artist like that um yes and i think you're right there are those singularities that you come across the pharrells the madonnas Michael Jackson, Cardi B, she's definitely one. You, you, it's it's all about learning and understanding their energy and what how they work. And there is no specific formula, but yes, things are different with with certain people. With certain people, you just there's a glow and a flow and a there's there's just it's it's so hard to describe it's so hard to try to put it into a bottle and manufacture it it's just you know obviously beyonce is like that mm-hmm. there's just these people you work with and you just you just a lot of you spend a lot of your time in awe and a lot of your time trying to dissect what makes this person great and seeing if you can pick apart something that you can take with you out of how they do things or how they come to their greatness it's that's for me that's how my brain works i'm usually when i'm around somebody who clearly is just not of this world (laughs) i'm trying to figure i'm trying to figure out i guess the best way i could put the analogy is when i meet somebody who clearly isn't of this world i'm trying to figure out what i got to do to survive on their planet wow yeah, I, I, I'm a little surprised by that because I feel like in talking to you, I feel like you'd be so unfazed by it all. I feel like you'd just like be like, well, this is, you know, I, I, I'm just going to work. Yeah, and, and there is a gear in you that has to be that way. And that's the thing that I always say is one of the most distinctive functions of between an amateur and a professional is as a as a professional what makes you a professional is if you can be in awe of somebody, be freaked out by a situation, be going, doing backflips in your brain, like, oh my God, oh fuck, it's Michael Jackson. But at the same rate, can you sit there and execute and do your job, do your job at the highest level, make sure they're happy? You know, that's what makes you a professional. And that, to me, that's one of the most distinctive things that separates a professional from an amateur where amateurs or people who aren't as seasoned, they, they crack under pressure or they crack under circumstances where they might meet somebody they didn't expect to meet or, you know. So I think that's that gear that professionals and successful professionals have that yeah. you're able to kind of be in that space. In in your, I feel like I've heard this story correctly, where in your first uh, mixing session with TLC, you did fuck up. and Oh, yeah. And and T uh, T Boz was just like, hey, like it's okay. And so like, can right. you talk about like, like? Yeah, and I think the energy was it's synergy. So I fucked up. You can tell I fucked up by the look on my face. <laughs> and so 
she was confident. I think that instilled enough confidence in her to feel like, you know what? Leslie got this. He'll be all right. He can he can bounce back from that. I think had I freaked out and panicked like I've seen engineers do before, I don't think she would have been so quick to back me. And I think she would have been like, okay, let's go ahead and just wait till the professionals get here. (laughs) So I think it's how you handle yourself that kind of then spawns a reaction from the person, you know? So I think, I think it's, it's that critical that you understand that that gear has to be there for you to be able to fuck up and not look like you're fucking up and look like you're still in control. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's an interesting quality to have, and I think it, it pays off. And I think it had something to do with why she felt comfortable is because I didn't make her feel uncomfortable. On just because f- I messed up. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. On, on the flip side, is there a moment that you can think of with an artist where they looked at you and they were like, oh, my God, I can't believe that Leslie brought this out of this song? Oh, absolutely. I've had those moments, and it's it's it's... It's the most flattering thing in the world where somebody you know, where it really matters is the people who you know are super critical. The people you know are listening for every inch of everything. And when they walk in a room and they can be impressed, I've had Andre 3000 do it. I remember Hmm. when I was mixing So Fresh and So Clean and he came and he was like, he, he sat down, he was like, he played it. And he asked me to play it again. And yeah, I think he asked me to play it like four times. He didn't have any comments. And he just sat back. He sat back and like it's like a pregnant pause for like twenty seconds. And then he was like, "Man, sounds real good." Sounds really good. <laughs> and like for him to say that, if you know anything about him, that's a fucking accomplishment. Like for him to not pick your shit apart and and a lot of times it's just his process. It's not that he's being super critical. He has a process where he likes to can we turn this up? Let's turn it down. Turn this up. And him and Erica um, Badu, they're so much alike in a sense mm. of they will go through a whole night's worth of notes and then go, you know what? Just put it back to how you had it when I came. <laughs> and what that is, what that is, is they just had to go through this process. They had to yeah. see, turn all the stones, look at all the angles and then go, Oh, okay. You, you you nailed it when I first walked in. But for him to actually be impressed and sit back and be like, man, sounds sounds really good. I mean, I was like, that was a moment. And like, even with Beyonce, we was mixing the Carter's album. And I remember when I mixed um the song, there's a song on there called Friends. Yeah. She, she walked in, she sat down, she listened to it. She was like, and, and I became the joke of the crew because it was all of us. It was a crew of engineers. So it's like me, um, Tony guru. Maserati, yep. yeah. Stewart, Guru, all of us were mixing. And so she walks in and she has like on their mixes, she's like ton of notes. Like, you know, she's <laughs> like, turn me up, turn me down. Da, 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 da. She walks in, she listens to mine. She's like, man, it sounds fucking great. Sounds great. <laughs> like, man, got me sounding really good. And then when I did nice, and she was like, oh my God, nice sounds amazing. Like, da, da. And so then, then we, they started making fun of me. It was like, oh, Leslie has all the easy songs. <laughs> You know, so now we had a bunch of fun, though. <laughs> Leslie, how how patient are you, like, just across the board? I think I'm a very my, – my wife says it all the time. I'm a super patient person. I'm, like, clearly the most patient person in my household. I know that. <laughs> um, but I think in general, I definitely have a level of patience. And I think it 
requires that to be a mixer and to be someone who pays attention to details, listening to a song 50 million times and listening to a part. And so, yeah, I, I, I definitely know that about myself and I'm a very patient person. Is there oh a God. is there a song that you can go back to even like you know I don't know twenty years later fifteen years later that you can go back to and you are just super proud of it still to this day or are you the type of person to go back and be like damn I really wish I like tweaked this a little bit yeah um I think there are records that apply to both um there are records that I definitely wish I could have went back and tweaked something like it's funny every time I hear Don't Take a Personal by Monica. I just it's cringeworthy to me because there's so many things I would have done differently, but it was like my first big mix and it worked and it yep. sounded good for the time. But as a mixer now, I hear it and I'm like, oh shit, I had the chorus effect. Like, well, Leslie, don't take it personal. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see what you did there. Yeah, thank yeah, you. But, but do you think that that's because of like the 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 uh, phonic you know uh, audiophile like world that you live in now and your ears are just different now like we live yes, in a different is. space where like the bass hits differently and like engineers have taken things to a totally different place sonically back then it was just like this might fit in with the rest of the records that are out there so it's like exactly you could be a little forgiving right yeah that is a part of it and that is true that is a part of my thought process so there are those records where i hear them and i'm like ah but then i'm like you know what it was the 90s everybody (laughs) you know so we're good you know so yeah but and then there are those records like the adverse where um, I think one of my favorite mixes that I've done in, in, in the hip-hop space is uh, Aston Martin Music. I mm. really love that mix. And it, yeah. it's hard for me to say I really love one of my mixes, but I really love that mix. And it just sonically, everything just fit right. It felt good. So I do have those moments where I do love on a mix that I've done, and then I have moments where I hate on other mixes that I've done. Are there any mixes that you've done that, like, we're not the final version, but that you're such a psychopath that you keep that version and you only listen to that in like the car? <laughs> oh yes. Oh <laughs> like a director's yes. cut of yeah. a film, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There are records like that for sure. There are records where I remember liking the rough mix way more than I ended up liking the final mixes or yeah, and I'll play the rough mix on my playlist. Yes. Absolutely. Um when you think about how hip hop specifically is mixed in 2020, how excited are you uh, as far as the genre is is concerned about how things are and how experimental it is and how how just you know big a sound it could possibly be? Um, I am very um, I'm really encouraged in the sense of I love when things are pushed in places that I couldn't even think of. So I like hearing the new sound. I remember when Uzi Vert um, came to me when I was mixing his record and he wanted all this reverb on his vocals and I hated it. And then when I heard <laughs> it, I was like, ah, it doesn't sound too bad. So it's, it's kind of, you know, I, I lean into learning from the younger generations and seeing where things are going and how hip hop is progressing. So I'm, I'm here for it. I'm, I'm here to embrace it. And I don't like everything, but I, I like some things. So Uzi, Uzi, uh, like Uzi was real new when he came and sat, sat down with us for the podcast and he came up with drama and, and Canon and Lake and everybody. And, um, and we talked to him. And by the way, I, th- I think we still have the record for the longest Lil Uzi Vert interview ever. Oh, for sure. Which is yeah. great. Uh, 
but he sat down with us and told us all about you know his love for Marilyn Manson's music. When you mm-hmm. first worked with Uzi, were you going back and listening to those Marilyn Manson records for reference? I did. I remember yeah. him bringing that up specifically, and I remember going back and just listening, just to try to get in a zone of to see where his ear was, what he liked, what he didn't like. So, and I always tell people, I tell young engineers, like when an artist gives you the cheat code, use the cheat code. Mm. So when they tell you, hey, I like this, this, and this, all I do is go download this, this, and this. Or if they say, I want the mix to sound like this, this, and this, I will download those records and put them in my session. And it's the same thing when they reference, hey, this is the space I've been in. I've been listening to a lot of Marilyn Manson, or I've been listening to a lot of so-and-so. If, sometimes they name people I've never heard of, and then I go do my research. I remember when I was mixing um, with Andre Three, um, um, he mentioned one time that he was into a group called Square Pusher, and I had no idea who Square Pusher was. And I downloaded their stuff, and it was like a um, like modern techno. I don't even know what to categorize <laughs> them as, but I liked it, and it was groovy, and I liked what I was hearing, and then I kind of understood where his ear was so when they give you little hints like that when they're telling you oh this is what i'm listening to that's homework material that's oh you got to make a note of that you know what i mean mm-hmm. was that for like um love hater hater of love that song say again because i think is that not uh i'm trying to think like what song that would have applied to was that for like love hater hater of love it, it, that particular conversation didn't even apply to a song. He was just telling me, we were just having a conversation. He was like, man, have you ever heard of Square Push? And I was like, no. He was like, yeah, I'm really digging their stuff right now. So nine times out of ten, if an artist is telling you they're really digging somebody's stuff, some of their notes or what they're feeling towards their own music is probably being inspired by the thing they're listening to. So it just, it, it would behoove me to go now and be like, okay, let me get some of Square Pusher stuff and see what they're about, see what that sound is about. That's you like I mean? any relationship. That's, that's <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. if, if your wife says, hey, by the way, like, <laughs> I, I hate this, <laughs> yeah. seems like, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or, or if, I, if I come in and my wife is like binge watching Snapped all the time, I'm like, oh, I gotta be on my P's and Q's around. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Leslie, whose who's voice can you just listen to you know, acapella or with, you know, a full instrumentation, whose voice do you really still get a kick out of and really just like love? You know, whose voice I absolutely love is Pink. I love Pink's voice. I actually, I would listen to her acapellas. Her voice is just amazing to me. She's one of my favorites when it comes to just the texture and tones in Mm. her voice. I love Pink. Who, who's Wait, voice? And, and you got to work with her. Yeah, yeah oh so. yeah. Whose voice has like a lot more colors than you think people really sort of uh, associate with it? Um. Ooh, that's an interesting question. Um, you know who I? You know who I think has always been undersold in the vocal category is Michael Jackson. I think undersold. A lot of are, yeah, I, I always think he was undersold in a sense of. You, if if you were to ask like audiophiles or music people who are some of the greatest voices in music, Michael doesn't come into that conversation. He'll come sure. into the conversation as greatest entertainers, greatest records, all of that. But vocals, if you were to say, if you were to ask anybody in music, name your top five vocalists, 
in music. Michael never really gets in that conversation, and I think he got. I think he's gotten snubbed. I think because I got to work with him, I got to hear him do things in the studio that never made it on records. His voice is amazing, like next level amazing. But a lot of times you don't hear those behind the scenes things on records because his records are pop records or they're more watered down to, you know, but that dude, he has some pipes. He has some vocals. There's a lot like of, if, um, if you, yeah. If you people that usually say like Kim Burrell or they'll name these names of people who have amazing vocals, but Michael never gets on that list. There's a lot of, um, you know, engineers who would who would pass around Pro Tools sessions and and get a kick out of listening to, you know, Marvin Gaye soloed or um, Stevie soloed or, you know, breaking down, um, you know, Michael Jackson sessions and, and just hearing, you know, how different artists would uh, record and what different, uh, you know, tracks would sound soloed. Uh, is there anything that you've heard through the years that just shook you to the core and you were like, that is extremely impressive? Yeah, um, I've gotten a ha my hand on some um, Stevie Wonder. Um, you know how to convert them to Pro Tools. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you said, we'll share them. And <laughs> I've, I've gotten some of the songs in the key of life. I've gotten some of the I, that that stuff. Uh, Bob Marley. I've gotten some of the Bob Marley um, wow. stuff. Wow. Oh my God. I've had I I've had like like. I just sit down and my mind is blown when I listen to the multi tracks sometimes. Like I don't know and if this how is they like used to record things and like you hear their hi hat bleeding into his mic or it's just crazy. Yeah, I don't know I don't know if this is like an easy answer for us, but man, uh our friend Greg and, and my brother Jeff and I, we would just sit down and we would listen to, you know, Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell and you know, Ain't No Mountain High Enough is just like it's beautiful as is, but when you dig deep into it it's like it That's really crazy. is. It just, you know, opens up your whole soul, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, when you think back about your entire career, Leslie, are you still not only the same guy who, who went to full sail and touched an SSL board for the first time, but are you still now when you can, you know, listen to a uh, a Pro Tools version of, of Stevie Wonder, are you still that same kid who would sit down with your father's record player and, and put on a Stevie Wonder record? Yep, that, but uh, I'm a little different now because I do it on a very high fidelity system, and I use. <laughs> but it's the same same concept. I I spend a lot of my time. I, it's funny. My daughter walked up on me two days ago. Um, I was sitting at my little station that I have in the house, and I'm just going through records on title, just playing different records for no reason. And she was like, "Daddy, what are you doing? You working?" And I was like, "No, I'm just listening to stuff." And she was like, "So you just randomly go through and pick artists and listen to their albums?" I'm like, "Yeah." And then she sat there with me for a minute and we started kind of just picking through and listening to stuff. So, yeah, I do it all the time still. I spend a lot of my free time just picking. Me and Cannon um, talked about uh, DJ Don Cannon. Me and him mm -hmm. talk mm -hmm. about it all the time where we're just like, we'll call each other up at like four in the morning. Like, bro, you ever heard of so-and-so? And, -so? and like, go <laughs> listen to this record. Or like, So me and him are like super audiophile geeks when it comes to like just listening to records and finding samples and digging in the crates and so i i still do it i still sit around listening to records all the time all the time well i feel like you know this entire conversation we've talked about your love of music but is there anything like is there something some rabbit hole that you and your life have gone down that you have a passion for that is like so unexpected and it's not music besides call of duty I was just about to say, <laughs> there are two specific rabbit holes in my life. 
and I have not been able to crawl out of bed. And one of them is Call of Duty, and the other one is snowboarding. Like I, we, and you know, after, before I ever went on a ski trip, if you would have told me that I would have been so wrapped up in the culture of snowboarding, I'd have been like, "You're crazy." I, I wouldn't have believed it. Well, listen, uh, Leslie, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, congratulations on a career just know above and beyond i'm sure whatever you thought as a as a kid i'm sure it's above and beyond whatever your mom thought when you were growing up but it certainly is uh just an amazing career to this point we're super excited that everything about everything you got going on right now and, and what's to come out of your out of your truck yeah and we're so excited about the five tracks you've mixed yeah i'm also excited about the other ones that are coming up yeah and uh and, <laughs> and and hopefully we'll get you back on the phone down the line uh leslie we appreciate you take care love you guys thanks everyone for listening to this new episode of Waste Time with the Thrill. Jeff, people want to find out more about us. I'm Eric with the curly hair. You are Jeff with, with the... With a lot of hair. <laughs> uh, together, we are It's the Real. No apostrophe, no spaces. If people want to find out more about this podcast, it's called Wasted Time with It's the Real. If people want to find out more about what's going on with us, Jeff, where can they go? You can always go to patreon.com slash it's the real. You can also go into our website at it's the real.com you want to go to twitter we are on twitter at it's the real we are also on instagram at it's the real i also am on tiktok i don't upload anything but i did comment on the georgia aquarium tiktok account when they said that they reopened their doors and there was a ton of people looking at all the fish and the penguins and i said are none of these people wearing masks and Kendall underscore lacrosse said, technically, we don't have to anymore, which is a lie. Yeah. And they said, but it would probably be wise. Well, thanks for that. It would be Kendall. wise, Kendall underscore lacrosse. Why don't you go wear a mask and fuck yourself? Okay, so if you want content like that, Jeff, on TikTok, yeah. where can you go? <laughs> it's the real, it's the real. Because we are the real... It's the real, so it's the real, it's the real. Guys, we have 311 other episodes that you can go find of A Waste of Time with the Real. We, we have, have like 51 episodes of Quarantine Radio. Jeff, is there anybody that you would like to shout? I want to shout out Kendall underscore lacrosse. <laughs> Why? My guy. I don't want to shout. My guy who understands that even though you don't have to wear a mask, you probably would be wise to. Oh my God. Jeff, I... <laughs> Jeff, I want to shout out our friend Jack Harlow, the acclaimed artist who has worked with Leslie Braithwaite. Um, Jack is fighting the good fight down there in Louisville. 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 Kentucky. Uh, Remembering and fighting for the memory of Breonna Taylor, who was murdered by the Louisville Police Department in her sleep, in her home. It's unfathomable. We are keeping her name alive. Jack is doing amazing work down there for a young man to have this type of understanding of the world and humanity and being a good citizen in this country. Uh, We salute Jack. We appreciate him. Jack is bigger than just the music. He is a great human being. Shout out to Jack Harlow. Also, people think that we're related to Jack Harlow. Let's keep that alive. Jeff, as always, now for real, for real. Sure, sure. We'll see you guys next week. (laughs)